right, and we are back with another edition of Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. I am Lee Grant, and this is not Kevin Pendergrass. Kevin will not be joining us this evening. He had some unforeseen circumstances arise that precluded him from joining us on this podcast. So you are stuck with me and only me once again, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective. I enjoy having Kevin on the show. I enjoy having him on the program. It's always nice to have his comments and interaction and to hear what he has to say because he often has a wealth of experience and insight that he brings to the conversation. And what we were going to discuss tonight is, as many of you know, if you've listened to this podcast for any stretch of time, you know that Kevin is in the process of writing a book because on almost every episode he says, in my book, I'm going to talk about this. And yeah, Kevin, uh, I'm, I'm ripping on you a little bit here, brother. But we love you anyway. And I know that I myself and all of our listeners are really looking forward to having that book released. I have personally read a few chapters at Kevin's request, and it's really, really good. You guys are going to love it. It's going to be fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to its release. But what so many of our other listeners may not know, and what many of you may not know, is that Kevin actually has already written a book. He wrote a book several years ago, or wrote a book several years ago, called A Different Kind of Poison, How Legalism Destroys Grace. And through various conversations Kevin and I had, we had decided that we would discuss his book tonight and talk about his journey out of legalism and talk about what prompted him to write that book and what that book was all about. But since he can't be here, you guys are going to get to hear my story about my journey out of legalism. I've already talked a little bit about my background and coming up, but I didn't go into a, a whole bevy of detail as to how I came out of legalism. I talked some about that, but I didn't really get into how I moved from a legalistic perspective and paradigm and, and spiritual opinion, you might say, into a paradigm that is more centered around grace and the person of Jesus and who he is and who he reveals himself to be. In a lot of the conversations I've had with people and a lot of things that people have said, one of the things that comes up over and again is how do you shift gears? I still struggle with this legalistic mindset. I still struggle with legalistic thinking from time to time. It still rears its head. It's hard to shift those gears, and, and it is. It can be incredibly difficult especially when a legalistic spiritual framework and that legalistic approach to the scriptures is all that you've ever really known and all you've ever really dealt with. It can be extremely difficult to move past that. It can be really hard to find a different way forward. It can be easy to deconstruct. It can be easy to pick apart and to tear apart, but it can be really hard to forge a new path forward or even know where to start to begin to do so. So we're going to talk about that this evening, and I hope it's beneficial for you all. But before we go into how to create that new way forward, I would like to retread some old ground and talk about my journey out of legalism from a little bit of a different perspective than I have before and go into some different details that I haven't shared yet on this podcast. Whenever we begin to think about legalism and whenever I talk about it and I think about how I used to think and I reflect on how I used to engage with people, how I used to engage with the scriptures and some of those opinions and ways of thinking that I possessed. There are times where I laugh at it. There are times when I cringe. And there are moments where I feel a sense of shame for how I used to think and behave and the lens through which I viewed scripture. When I think about those things, it really is... Uh, it really is embarrassing in a lot of ways because whenever you're in the middle of that moment, when you're in the middle of thinking in that legalistic framework and in that paradigm, everybody who is involved in legalism is involved in it because they're sincere in their beliefs. They have either inherited a system of belief or they have been taught a system of belief. They have received this construct from on high that this is what the Bible is. This is how it works. This is what God wants and what God expects. And this is what I need to do to be pleasing unto him. And what legalism is by definition, it's a noun. And I'm, I'm reading from Webster's dictionary here. Legalism is defined as a strict adherence or principle of strict adherence to law or prescription, especially to the letter rather than the spirit. In theology, 
it is number one, the doctrine that salvation is gained through good works. And number two, the judging of conduct in terms of adherence to precise laws. Now, you're not really going to find any Christian that's going to come out and say that salvation is gained through good works, but many times a legalistic theology, it implies that. And even though that is something that would be denied by practically every legalist that has ever legalized, you might say, it's true whenever you think about it. If one doesn't adhere to X, Y, Z principle of the law, well, then they can't be saved. And then what that necessarily means is, is that your salvation is then predicated upon your ability to engage in those good works and your willingness to engage in those good works. And if you do engage in these good works, well, then God will merit favor unto you. Oh, no, you don't earn it, but you kind of do in a way within that paradigm. And then you're saved. Within specific, I would say more fundamentalist sects of Christianity, though, you're going to see that second theological definition manifest itself much more blatantly. And that is you're judged in terms of your conduct and your adherence to those precise laws. How precisely are you obeying the Bible and what the Bible says? Now, that's going to take different forms in different groups, and there are going to be different things that are emphasized depending on what tradition is is being considered. Within Pentecostal traditions, you're going to have a heavy emphasis on holiness codes and on the manner of dress and what women wear and what men wear and whether or not you wear jewelry or makeup or the way you wear your hair or whether you cut your hair and, and things of that nature. And you're going to see some of that bleed over into some of the more conservative, you might say, or more strict one-cup traditions or branches within the churches of Christ. And you're going to see some of that manifest itself in different ways, but you'll even see that in, in a more loose collection of ways as well, because maybe those laws don't pertain to your dress or this or that. Maybe they pertain to what you eat or drink or how much you eat or drink. And, it, and it's odd that we really don't ever hear much in terms of, of gluttony whenever we think about legalism, but I digress. Anyway, different people are going to look at legalism in different ways, but the core foundational definition of legalism remains the same. The application of it what drives that application remains the same, even though it will appear in different ways. So I don't want to speak for everybody else, but I'll just sort of remunerate some of the ways that my legalism manifested itself when I was still entrenched within that legalistic mindset. Now, there's a difference between having convictions that are your own and then having convictions that you believe everyone else needs to have or they're going to hell forever. Whenever you believe everyone else needs to share in your convictions or they're going to hell forever, it, well, then that can manifest itself as legalism. Now, one of the arguments that I would have made against legalism is saying, well, saying that God wants you to be obedient to him is not legalism. And that's true. But, but what does obedience mean? Does it mean obedience to a certain set of principles or laws or prescriptions in a very strict manner? following that letter of the law in gory detail or else, or is there something else at play here? And that's really the driving facet or the, the driving philosophy behind this podcast is exploring what all of that means. And Kevin and I have discussed that ad nauseum for over a year. So go back and listen to all of this and you can see that manifest itself in different ways. But the way it would manifest itself for me, first of all, is in the idea that baptism for specifically is absolutely essential for salvation. And this is something that I still possess a conviction on. I do believe that baptism is incredibly important. I believe that baptism in Christianity, you can't really have Christianity without having a doctrine or theology about baptism. Baptism is one of those things that is fundamentally um, entrenched within Christianity itself. If you pick up the Bible and you read through the Bible, you're going to see references made over and over and over and over again to baptism. Now, there are differences of opinion as to the purpose of baptism and the efficacy of baptism and what it is that baptism actually does. There are some groups that believe that baptism is a symbol of fealty to Christ, that it's an outward sign of that inward change that is manifested within the heart of a Christian. That when someone is baptized, they are publicly testifying and declaring their allegiance to God. There are some others, and this has become an opinion that's gaining some steam in recent years due to the, some of the work of Michael Heiser, 
baptism is spiritual warfare at work. And you can read some of Heiser stuff. I'm not going to take time to get into all that. There are others that say that baptism really doesn't have any value whatsoever. It's something that, that people do. It's a tradition. It's a ritual. And then there are others like me who believe that baptism is absolutely 100% necessary for salvation. You must be baptized in order to be saved. If you're a person who believes in Jesus, you must be baptized. And if you're not baptized, you'll be lost forever. I believe that for a very long time, and I still believe that baptism is incredibly important. I believe that it is something that every Christian ought to do, that there is power in that. But I'm not willing any longer to go so far as to say that if someone is not baptized, that they're not saved. I don't think that that's a position that is tenable in terms of scripture and in terms of studying the context and the history of baptism, the purpose of baptism within scripture, I do think it's incredibly important. And I think any Christian that is worth their salt should have a desire to be baptized, but I don't think any longer that that's something that will make and break somebody. And now there are people whenever who, who believe this, they believe it in all sincerity. I did forever. But there are certain things that go along with this that that begin to, to creep up. There are discussions people have. There are arguments that people will get into on this topic. So the idea is as well, what about people who are maybe they're trapped in the desert? Maybe these are people who are trapped on a deserted island. And, and funnily enough, I found an old sermon that I gave over 10 years ago that was titled Trapped in the Desert and Communists in China. And the idea is, is that these people that maybe they, maybe they're on a plane and it crashes, or maybe they're on a boat and their boat capsizes and they're on a little life raft or they grab a board and they wash up on shore. And maybe there's a Bible there for whatever reason, let's just say there's a Bible there and they open up and then they read that Bible and they, they see the need of baptism. But unfortunately, even though they're surrounded by water on this Island, there is no one there to immerse them in water. And even though they see the Bible and even though they're convinced that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, that Jesus is the son of God and he is the means by which we enter into fellowship with God, they desire to be baptized, but they can't be. Well, if they die on that desert island, well, what happens to them? Or maybe to make it a little more real, suppose that you're studying the Bible with somebody and you're discussing the need of baptism. You get to the point of baptism. You say, you need to be baptized to be saved. And they're convinced, yep, need to be baptized to be saved. Well, let's get in the car. Let's drive to somewhere where there's water and let's baptize. And then on your way there, you're in a car accident. That person who's going to be baptized dies. Well, are they saved or are they lost? They've studied the scriptures. They see the gospel message. They see Jesus and recognize him as their savior, recognize that he can and will save them. Well, then what happens to them? Are they lost or are they saved? For those who believe that baptism is absolutely essential for salvation, this is a conundrum. Because on the one hand, you have the mercy of God and the love of God. But then on the other hand, you have the necessity of baptism. Well, my answer years ago would have been, well, they're lost. They weren't baptized. They didn't do the ritual and because they didn't do the ritual, their soul is forfeit. It's just too little too late. If they would have acted sooner, if they would have would have been more careful, then they wouldn't have been lost. But because they weren't baptized, because they didn't do that ritual, they're lost. I no longer believe that. I do believe that if a Christian studies the Bible and they have a and they see what the Bible says about Christ, that they should have a desire to be baptized. And that if they are baptized and they are saved. But if that Christian's on the way to get baptized and they die on the way, I firmly believe that God will have mercy on their soul and that God will save them in the end. But my legalism went even further than that, though. It wasn't only necessary to be baptized. You had to be baptized the right way. The ritual had to be done in a pure way, free of any error whatsoever. What that meant is full immersion is the only way that baptism could be administered. After, after all, the word baptize isn't a translated word. It's a transliterated word. If you were to translate baptize or baptizo from the Greek into English, it would be translated immerse. But if you were to translate baptizo or transliterate it rather, it would be baptize. 
What that means is, is that pouring is not a viable way to baptize someone. Pouring isn't really even baptism at all. Neither is sprinkling. You can't pour, you can't sprinkle. Only immersion counts. If you don't do the ritual the right way, well, then you're lost. Furthermore, if you were immersed and 100% of your body did not go under the water, well, then the baptism didn't count. You weren't immersed. If you were baptized and your little pinky toe just barely stuck up out of the water, well, then that's not good enough. We have to repeat the procedure. We have to repeat the ritual. I believe this so strongly that whenever someone would be baptized, I would stand up at the front of the building by the baptistry to watch to ensure that that person was fully immersed. And I wasn't alone in that opinion. There are many, many, many people who believe in the essentiality of baptism for salvation and the exclusivity of baptism for being the means of salvation who believe the same thing. If the whole body doesn't go under the water, if there's even just a little part sticking up out of the water, well, then the baptism is of no effect. And really what that is, is it's placing more emphasis on the ritual than what's taking place within the ritual. Instead of focusing on that transformation of life that takes place whenever one sees Jesus and knows who Jesus is and pledges to follow after Jesus, the focus is then placed on how the ritual is performed. The ritual is then elevated to a higher status than what the ritual represents, and that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Not only that, but the baptism had to be for the right reason. You had to go into that baptism with the mental knowledge of knowing what it was for. You're being baptized to be saved. So not only did you have to submit to the ritual, but you had to do it with the right degree of knowledge. You had to do it with the right opinion. You had to be baptized for the right reasons. If you had been fully immersed, and if every single part of your body, including your little pinky toe, had gone underwater, but you were baptized under the impression in your mind, that this was an outward sign of an inward change, well, then your baptism was no good. Because baptism is not an outward sign of an inward change. Baptism is absolutely essential for salvation. And if you're not baptized with that idea in mind that I'm doing this for the remission of sins, for the express purpose of having my sins remitted, well, then it's no good and it wouldn't work. Not only that, but the ritual had to have the right word said, the right incantation, you might say, had to be uttered. Whenever you were baptized, the person doing the baptism, administering it, must say, I baptize you by the authority of Jesus Christ in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. If that wasn't said, the baptism was no good. And the reason for that is, is in Acts 2.38, we see the um, command being given by Peter at those uh, men and women gathered together on that day of Pentecost after they heard the gospel preached and they're cut to their heart when they realize that they had murdered the Messiah they waited so long for. They ask, men and brethren, what shall we do? And that's when Peter said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Well, in the name of Jesus Christ is a language, a linguistic construct that means by the authority of Jesus Christ. You need to be baptized. It's by Christ's authority that I tell you this. Jesus himself said, to go in Matthew 28 and 19 into all the world and baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the instructions were given by Jesus by his authority, and the instructions that were given were to go and do it this way. And so if a person didn't say, I baptize you by the authority of Jesus Christ in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, well, then their baptism was no good. So you see, there are a lot of steps that needed to be taken in order for someone to be saved in order for someone's baptism to count. Never mind the saving power of Christ. Never mind the saving power of the blood. The emphasis was on the ritual, in my mind at least, and the emphasis was on getting it right. Now, there's nothing wrong with baptizing someone in that manner. But what I have come to realize is that the God that we serve is way more focused on our hearts. He's way more focused on our souls. He's way more focused on our intention to follow him and to manifest those fruits of the spirit in our own lives than he is our ritualistic perfection and obedience. That's one form that my legalism took. Another form that my legalism took, Kevin and I recently did an episode on this, was related to the way that communion was observed, the way that we would observe the Lord's Supper. I came out of the one cup branch of the churches of Christ. 
I believed strongly that in order for one to be right in the sight of God and in order for one to worship correctly, that they needed and were required to observe the Lord's Supper every week. And whenever the Lord's Supper was observed, only one loaf of unleavened bread could be used and one cup of grape juice could be used. For a congregation to deviate from that pattern was to deviate from what God himself had established. Now, whenever this was observed, the ritual had to be done in the right way. The loaf had to remain intact throughout the communion. Now, what that means is, is that whenever the efficient would get up, he would take the loaf and he would pinch a little piece off of it and he would eat that piece. The remainder of that loaf is intact minus that piece that was broken off. The efficient would not break that loaf in half and then pass each half around. The efficient wouldn't break a piece off and then have the loaf crumble. If the loaf crumbled, well, maybe someone's taking a piece off of this big piece over here and someone else is taking a piece off of this little piece over here. We're not then all partaking of the, quote, same loaf. We're partaking of different loaves. When that loaf would break into pieces, well, now it's not one loaf. It's multiple loaves. And that's unacceptable. We have to use one loaf. Whenever this was observed, in addition to using the cup and only one cup, the foundational idea behind that and the driving force was the fact that Jesus said, do this when he established the Lord's Supper, do this in memory of me. Well, what did Jesus do? He took one loaf and tore a piece off of it, and then they pass it around. If it had broke it in half, no one else could do this. No one else could break it in half. So he must have only pulled one little piece off. You know, he you know, gave them a cup. They all drank from it. You know, they all took from that cup and that's all they did. Never mind that whenever it says they all drank from it, referencing the cup that Jesus gave them, that's a reference to the third um, ritualistic Passover cup and not an individual cup. Whenever you study the linguistics behind that, it becomes clear. And imagine my embarrassment when I discovered that was the case. But in any case, the point is, is that the focus was on the ritual. We need to do the ritual the right way And it must be done this way. And if we don't do it this way, well, then we put our souls in jeopardy. We put it in peril. But not only that, whenever the table was waited on and the blessing is said over the loaf and over the cup, it has to be prayed for in the right way. After all, from the one cup perspective, and if you want more information on this, listen to the episode that we did a few weeks ago. That loaf has spiritual significance. It represents the body of Christ. That cup has spiritual significance. It represents the new covenant, but the fruit of the vine it contains represents the blood. There are three items on that table, and that needs to be mentioned in order for this to be done correctly. Now, even within the one cup group, there's disagreement over whether or not that needs to be uttered, but that was my conviction. That was my perspective, and I personally had a problem with any brother that would get up there and would fail to mention the three items and their three significant counterparts or antitypes. If a brother failed to do that, I personally had a problem with it. I struggled with whether or not the communion was actually right in God's eyes. That was the type of legalism that I had. Forsaking the assembly is another point. You don't ever miss church. Hebrews 10, 25, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some and so much more as you see the day approaching. It was incredibly important. Whenever COVID came and I was still working through some of this legalistic mindset and and deconstructing it, this was something that I struggled with then too. And the reason for that is whenever you begin to deconstruct legalism, it always starts topically. You always start thinking about various topics, and those topics are going to be different for different people. You end up changing your perspective on a few topics, and for some people, that's as far as it goes. Very, very seldom does someone recognize that the driving force behind those conclusions and some of the other legalistic conclusions that someone holds to is an undergirding viewpoint of what the Bible is, how it works, how it is to be read, understood, interpreted, and applied. At this point in my walk, at this point in my spiritual journey, I had undone some of that thinking on some topics, but I was still very much operating under a legalistic rule book approach to the scriptures, even more so, or or in a much greater sense than I was, realizing that my entire perspective on the Bible and how it works and how it's to be read was flawed 
and wrong. So whenever COVID-19 happened and I was still sort of in that legalistic mindset, this was just a probably three months or so, two to three months, two months before Kevin and I started talking about beginning this podcast, COVID hit. And we're talking about massive lockdowns and massive shutdowns. All of you that listen to this podcast, you guys know everything that has happened within the last year and a half or so. It has not been a fun year and a half. It's been bad. There have been shutdowns. People are getting nasty with each other. People are getting mean with each other. People are judging each other over whether they take the vaccine or whether they don't or whether they use ivermectin. And I'm not talking about horse pace. I'm talking about the human form that doctors prescribe for humans. People are judging each other over these things, and it's it's just ridiculous. Well, within the Churches of Christ, especially within the One Cup group, there was a lot of discussion and a lot of anxiety over what to do. You know, the government, at that point, we didn't know exactly what COVID was and how it would work. We thought it was going to kill everybody. I mean, we thought we were staring down the barrel of a second black death that was coming to take us all out. And so we're talking about, well, what do we do? Do we continue to meet? Do we suspend our services? Do we take some measures and start social distancing? Do we wear masks? What do we do about communion? Because we're all taking of one loaf and one cup. Is that going to be a vector for this? It hasn't really been a vector before for other pandemics or other microbes or anything like that. What do we do? And there were some churches that were making the choice to suspend services. There were other Christians who were saying, no, 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 no. You don't need to suspend your services. Other congregations were judging the ones that did suspend their services, saying they were forsaking the assembly, that they were digressing from the pattern, that they needed to be brave, that they were being cowardly. Even though from their perspective, they were operating in humility and trying to consider their brother greater than themselves, trying to love their neighbor as themselves, they were still being judged for it. Do we suspend services? Do we change how we do communion? Oh, no, no, no. We're not going to do that. Maybe we'll change the manner in which we deliver communion while keeping the emblems the same. There were some churches that would keep their doors open and they would continue to meet. Those churches that would suspend their services, many of their congregants would worship with their families at home on Sunday mornings. Well, that was judged as well. Because now you have a divided assembly. The idea being within the one cup church, we also didn't do Sunday school. Sunday school is one of those things that's not biblical. It's not found in the Bible. Neither are Bible classes because it divides the assembly. You see, Paul said in the letter to the Corinthians, when you all come together in one place, you see the church has to come together in one place. Well, now the church, the congregation is not coming together in one place. Everyone is dividing their assembly. I personally know of two different congregations that had formal division and formal splits over this concept of whether or not members should meet at home or whether they should gather together to worship in public. It was bad. That's that's what legalism had done. And I was in the camp of we need to continue to meet. But if people want to meet at home, they can. We've talked about the the hair on this, the hair doctrine. We did a whole episode on that. That was a legalistic manifestation of my worldview and mentality. Um, dancing was another one. I, re- I remember one year whenever I was, I'd been a, um, a member of the churches of Christ for about four years at this point, And I was asked to speak at a young people's meeting and the topic that I was asked to speak on was dancing. And so I looked at the Bible and what it said about dancing, because dancing is mentioned in the Bible as a form of worship. It's mentioned in the, in the Bible as a form of celebration. It's mentioned as something that children do. And so I spoke on it and gave an exegesis on dancing and what it is and when dancing can then become lasciviousness by mentioning Vashti whenever Ahasuerus wanted her to dance before his men to please them, whenever Herod wanted his niece to come and dance um, before him and his court, you know, all of those things, you know, that preach about those. And I came under fire for that because I didn't come out and condemn all dancing as being lasciviousness. So what did I do? I changed my mind and stated after that, that all dancing was lasciviousness. I used to make the one drink drunk argument, even though that's not biochemically how drunkenness works or how alcohol metabolism works. I, anyway, the, I could keep going on and on and on. I've already rambled for 30 minutes about manifestations of legalism in my own life and my own mentality. But the point is simple. In my mind, attaining salvation 
was predicated on precision obedience to a divine, precise pattern that was revealed in Scripture that we are to follow. This pattern was a series of actions and things to avoid, and abstentions, you might say, that every Christian should avoid, and there were things that every Christian should do. Those are the things, specifically baptism, the the five-point plan of salvation, you might say, that puts one into Christ and makes one a Christian, and then a continuum of precision obedience to the right set of rituals on Sunday, continue precision obedience to the right mindset and mentality and the right things to do in your life, the things you wear, the things you don't wear, the things you say, the places you go, the entertainment you consume, all of those things, your salvation hinges on it. As Kevin and I have discussed ad nauseum on this this show, though, my list was not 100% identical to anyone else's. And there were things that I would be arbitrary about that I would consider a salvation issue that others wouldn't. And we would disagree and we would get down on it and we would we would absolutely rip into each other. That was the mindset that I had. And so what was it that changed? What was it that triggered a shift from legalism to grace? One of the things I said earlier is that everyone that experiences this paradigm shift or almost everyone that experiences this paradigm shift, it happens because of a topic. Usually there's a doctrinal concept that the framework of legalism, there's some cognitive dissonance that's generated. And cognitive dissonance is an interesting thing. Cognitive dissonance, as defined by the Oxford Dictionary, says that it is the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, especially as relating to behavioral decisions and attitude change. So What happens is whenever cognitive dissonance manifests itself to a legalist, to me, for for example, there are some things, there's, there's a construct by which I engage with the world. There's a lens through which I view the world. There's a value system that I possess, and that is what drives my opinions, my thoughts, my interactions, and the way I make sense of everything. But then if there is an event or if there is a situation that flies in the face of that construct, if there's something that that violates those rules that I have established that doesn't make sense, well, then I have to reorient myself to those rules and make some adjustments. But sometimes that's untenable. Sometimes there are no adjustments that can be made within that framework to preserve the framework. And then the framework begins to fall apart. Virtually everyone who has experienced this paradigm shift has had this shift triggered by cognitive dissonance that has manifested itself because of something that they have seen witnessed or experienced in their lives that they cannot reconcile with their legalistic framework. And when that happens, it's terrifying. When that happens, it induces anxiety of the highest order. It drives you insane. You have sleepless nights. You lose your appetite. You get stressed out. You begin to have panic attacks. At least I did. It doesn't always start that way, though. It usually starts small. And then when you just can't make sense of it, if you're being intellectually honest with yourself and you can't make sense of it, you don't stick your head in the sand. You don't run away from it, but you try to face it head on. It'll drive you crazy. Different people experience different things. And Kevin will talk about his paradigm shift and what triggered it whenever we discuss his book in in a following episode at some point. But for me, one of the main things, there were two things, the two prongs I've talked about on this program before that began my deconstruction of my legalistic framework that would eventually replace it with something far, far, far better and far more biblical was marriage, divorce, and remarriage and science and the intersection between science and faith. So a marriage, divorce, and remarriage, I had a friend who is in a, who was in a very, very bad relationship, a very bad marriage. And they had made the point, they had made the statement, and I mentioned this in the series we did on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Listen to that one. It's a great one. That's one of our most popular series on this podcast. Share it with your friends. It's wonderful. But they had made the statement, it makes no sense to me that if I divorce my husband, I can never marry again and I have to be alone forever. And if I do get married, then God won't forgive me for that. 
unless I divorce my new spouse. And then apparently, even though God hates divorce, he, he wants me to divorce my new spouse. But if I were to kill my husband, God will forgive that. And then I can marry someone else and I get off scot-free. They said, it doesn't make any sense. And I said, buddy, you're right. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense at all. And that was a seed that was planted that got me thinking. This legalistic perspective on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, which I didn't think it was legalistic at the time. I thought it was just simply being humbly obedient. I said, this doesn't make sense. And then I began to study, and you can hear the results of that study in that series we did in almost 15 hours worth of material on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What that construct of marriage, divorce, and remarriage that I held on to did is it called into question the nature of God. It called into question God's mercy, God's forgiveness, and God's love. We, I think we would all believe that murder is probably a worse thing, at least from our human perspective, than what adultery would be. And yet we treat it as the exact opposite whenever we take that view that the, quote, guilty party, or rather the only exception for divorce and remarriage, is adultery. That there's no other way out. That if a woman's getting, you know, the snot beat out of her every night, she has no recourse. She just has to grin and bear it. And if she does divorce, well, then she's doomed to a life of loneliness and isolation forever. She can never again know the touch of someone who loves her. She can never find herself in the arms of a man who cherishes her. That that's something that's completely unacceptable in God's sight. It boggles the mind. That was cognitive dissonance beginning to rear its head. At the same time, learning more about the nature of the universe and supernovas in particular, geology, all of those things at the intersection of science and faith began to create more cognitive dissonance. And we talked about that in a series we did on science and faith. Go back and check that out. Whenever I began to think about those things and I began to search the scriptures for answers, I didn't find answers. I only found more questions. And the reason is because the door had been opened. The light was beginning to shine through. I was beginning to see that my way of thinking and my approach to the scriptures didn't work anymore. Deeper study revealed that I could not fully grasp the meaning of the scriptures without knowing something about the cultural and social and historical context from which the Bible came from. I had this idea in my mind of what the Bible was, of what the Bible was supposed to be, what its intended use was, and how Christians should interact with it. What I had failed to realize is that in viewing the Bible through that lens, I was completely ignoring its cultural context. I was completely ignoring the why behind so much of what is written in the scriptures. And that's what drives that narrative. That's what drives the meaning behind the scriptures. Whenever we see the, for example, the value and the need of the divorce certificate, as Jesus talked about, and as Moses declared in Deuteronomy, whenever we see the divorce certificate and why it was there, it was to protect the woman. That throws marriage, divorce, and remarriage, that all of those concepts in a completely different light. Whenever we look at the culture of Corinth and we look at Roman culture in the days of Paul, whenever Paul talks about abandonment and a spouse departing from another and how they're not bound to them under law, he's speaking in terms of Roman terms of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, What, how Roman them did it. If you wanted to marry somebody, a lot of times you just move in with them. You were considered married under the side of law in Rome. We call it common law marriage now in our country. If you wanted to divorce, you just moved out and you were considered divorce at that, at that point. All of that changed everything about how I viewed those things. Whenever I saw the two creation stories in Genesis and how they were wholly different from one another, I began to realize that you know, maybe the point of Genesis isn't to reveal historical fact about what happened in a literal historical sense. Maybe the author of Genesis, maybe the Holy Spirit through his inspiration was up to something completely different. As I began to study the Bible more deeply, I realized that I had completely missed so much of the meaning because I hadn't taken the time to learn about the context of Scripture. 
Dallas Burdett, who's a, another scholar that we have mentioned on this podcast a time or two before, he has a saying that whenever you study the Bible, the three most important things are context, context, and context. <laughs> and I think Dallas is right. One example that I'll give that we haven't discussed on this podcast, but we are going to discuss in a full episode, and we'll flesh this out in more detail in the future, is modesty. You know, one of the things that that so many groups teach and that so many of my well-meaning friends still teach within the more, more fundamentalist and the more strict um, circles of the churches of Christ is that if you expose your thigh, for example, if your shorts are just a little too short, if your shorts come up just above the knee, well, then you're exposing your thigh and thus you're exposing nakedness. And part of this idea, and like I said, we're only going to spend a couple of minutes on this because we're going to flesh this out in a full episode in the future, is that in Isaiah chapter 47, this mentions the thigh as being nakedness. And here Isaiah says, come down and sit in the dust, virgin daughter Babylon, sit on the ground without a throne, daughter Chaldea, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal, remove your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs. The new King James says, uncover the thigh, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Now, whenever the Bible says this, what a lot of people say and what I used to say is that the thigh is considered nakedness biblically. It's part of the naked body. If you look at someone's thigh, you're looking at their nakedness. Because right here it says, see, take off the robe, take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, your nakedness shall be uncovered. You see, by uncovering the thigh, you're uncovering your nakedness. Therefore, the thigh is nakedness. If context is ignored, it's easy to see how that conclusion can be reached. It, it does make sense until you know the context. The direct context of this passage doesn't have anything to do with revealing what nakedness is or isn't in the eyes of God. Isaiah is speaking metaphorically to describe the ultimate and complete humiliation that Babylon is going to face whenever God avenges Israel and visits his vengeance upon Babylon for their destruction of Israel. He's not intending to describe God's view of what nakedness is. Whenever you begin to look at this within its context and this figure of speech, this statement of uncovering the thigh, of uncovering the legs, that's a Hebrew euphemism that's commonly used to refer to the genitalia. Anytime the word nakedness is, is used or stated within scripture, Nakedness in Hebrew always refers to the area of the body called the pudendum. That's where your genitals are. The pudendal area is what nakedness refers to. Whenever the word uncover the thigh is used, that's a euphemism that means to expose your genitals. That's what it means every time that the word uncover the thigh is used in a euphemistic sense. It always means that. Whenever we look at modesty, the ancient Jews and the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans had completely different views on what modesty is versus what so many good, well-meaning Christians say modesty is. If we were to go back in time with this conception of modesty and nakedness and tell these Hebrews and, and these Greeks and these Romans that this is how God defines nakedness, if we were to go back and find some ancient Jews and ancient Christians and tell them this is how God defines nakedness, they would laugh us out of the room because we're confusing a figure of speech with something that is not meant to be taken something that's not meant to be taken literal we're making it literal but in any case what we see is is that these ideas of modesty were culturally driven and understanding of what the bible says about modesty necessarily means we need to understand something about the culture of modesty that the bible came from and I mean, in short, so many of the assumptions that I'd made in the past they didn't fit that cultural milieu of the bible there were so many applications and so many assumptions that I thought were just plain, straightforward, to the point, sacrosanct, and above and beyond all discussion. These matters were settled. But what I had done was I had mistaken the cultural packaging of Scripture for Scripture itself. I had misapplied and misinterpreted that cultural packaging, and I had created a construct that went so far afield in a lot of ways to the meaning of the Bible that I completely missed the point. 
the fundamental assumptions that I held about the Bible, about what it is, about how it needs to be read, about how it needs to be used, they all fell apart when I began to study deeper. When I began to study context, when I began to study on a deeper level, everything changed. I realized that the Bible was not a rule book of how to do the right rituals, the right ways at the right times and the right places to be right before God. That's not why the Bible was written. That's not why God gave it to us. I realized that the Bible was not and is not the ultimate arbiter of truth in all things that it touches on. Now, there are people that are going to hear that and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What do you mean by that? Are you saying the Bible isn't true? No, that is not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that there are things in the Bible that Kevin and I have talked about on this podcast before that are assumed to be true, either explicitly or implicitly, that are not true. And what I mean is the terms of science, for example, that the Bible touches on. Some of the cultural constructs the Bible touches on. For example, and we'll get more into this when we talk about modesty, but it wasn't uncommon and it wasn't considered unacceptable for Jewish men to be naked in front of one another in certain contexts, even in public. But if a woman was seen with more than a handbreadth of skin exposed or with a lot of her hair exposed, that was considered nakedness and immodest and inappropriate. Well, is that true? Well, no. In our day and time, it isn't. If the Bible is the ultimate arbiter of truth in every dot and every tittle in every literal sense, well, then we also would need to accept slavery as something that's holy and right and sanctified in God's sight. We would need to accept sexism and racism. We would need to accept, in some cases, taking concubines and, and polygamy and all of those other things that we absolutely reject. All of those are things that are never condemned and oftentimes are glorified within the scriptures. Those heroes of faith in the Old Testament especially often had multiple wives and engaged in polygamy and concubinage. David, the greatest king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, had concubines. And he laid with a woman, a young woman who wasn't his wife. She was a concubine, or you may even say she was one of his wives, if you want to soften it a little bit in his old age, to keep him warm. Those are things that we would not accept as being, as being ex acceptable in any shape or form in our modern day and time. So when I say the Bible is not the ultimate arbiter of truth in everything that it touches on, that's what I mean. Is the Bible absolutely true? Yes, it is but it's true in its message. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Ultimately, the Bible is not and was never intended to function as a checklist of all the correct things to do in life and all the things you must avoid lest you make God unhappy and he smite thee. Whenever we view the Bible through that lens, and you can take inventory of your beliefs, you can take inventory of, of your convictions. And I'm not decrying convictions. I'm not saying that convictions are a bad thing. But if you view the scriptures in that way, more than likely, you have a legalist mentality and a legalistic approach to scripture. When I personally realized that I had been misusing and abusing the Bible because of my faulty understanding, I had to find a new way forward. I had to. And you guys have been witness to a large part of that process for me through these episodes. I've shared a lot of my journey with you already. What I realized and what was most disconcerting of all for me, the thing that got to me the most is that as I began to forge a way forward, I had an epiphany one night. It was in the shower after jujitsu class. I was thinking about what my jujitsu coach Kyle and I were talking about one evening. And Kyle and I, at that point, when I was still engaged in, in that legalistic mindset, we did not see eye to eye on a lot of scriptural things, on a lot of biblical doctrines and topics, but I never told him that. From that old legalistic paradigm, well, he was lost and bound for a devil's hell. But it was really hard for me to make sense of that because Kyle manifests and still does. And Kyle, he listens to this. So yeah, I'm talking to you and talking about you. So I hope you're not embarrassed. But Kyle manifests more of the fruits of the spirit in his little finger than so many other people that I know that have been, quote, Christians for 50, 60 years. 
the man is a lover of Jesus. He is a pursuer of truth. He is a follower of God. He loves God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He loves his neighbor as himself. He is one of the finest Christian men that I have ever had the privilege to know. And I'm thrilled for him to be my friend. And I am absolutely thrilled to be able to train jujitsu under him as my coach. He's a wonderful dude. What I realized one night after jujitsu in the shower, as I was still kind of going through this deconstruction process and I was still playing it all close to the vest, is that I really didn't know Jesus. I was thinking about Kyle and what he had to say about how the spirit was moving him and how God was helping him in his life and how, you know, he, he has this desire to, to follow Jesus and to know God and to know Christ. And I'm sitting there in the shower thinking, I, I can't say that. I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Who is God anyway? And when that hit me, I realized something has to change. But when you're like me and you've been legalistic for so long, and when you have elevated the intellectual pursuit of a bunch of facts above relationship and getting to know Jesus, you almost have to start with learning more facts. To make a long story short, because I've rambled on for about 10 minutes longer than I intended to on this, I got to know Jesus. How did I move from legalism to grace? First, I saw the cognitive dissonance that had manifested itself and I accepted it. I acknowledged it and I realized that this inability to reconcile these ideas is because I have the wrong ideas in the first place. I began to undo that mode of thinking and I started by going back to the Gospels. I went back to Matthew and I read Matthew through. The next day I went to Mark and I read Mark through. It was way easier. Mark's quite a bit shorter than Matthew, almost half the length. I then went to Luke and read through Luke, and then I went to John. And for whatever reason, John kicked me right in the teeth. John's gospel, it's so unlike the synoptic gospels, but it's in John's gospel that I met Jesus the Messiah. And it's within the synoptic gospels that I met Jesus the man, Jesus the human. Jesus, the man who Hebrew says was tempted as all points, even as we are yet without sin. Jesus, the man who had compassion and love for those who were without. Jesus, the man who when someone deviated from the littlest jot or tittle in the law, when that woman was caught red handed in the act of adultery. Though the law said to stone her to death. He said, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. And as those men walked away, Jesus looked at that woman and he said, where'd all those people go that were accusing you? And that woman said, well, they're gone. And Jesus said, yeah, you go now and sin no more. This Jesus who dined with sinners, who dwelt with tax collectors, who went about feeding the poor, who went about clothing the needy, who said, if your enemy desires your, your, your tunic, give him your shirt also. If someone compels you to walk a mile with them, go two miles with them. I didn't read the Bible for the first time. For the first time, I didn't read the Bible to study it, to parse data, to find various points to make or to, or to shore up my convictions on a particular point of doctrine or law or this or that. But I read through it to see the narrative voice contained within it. I read it to see what the Spirit had to say. I read the Bible, starting with the Gospels, to see Jesus. I read it to meet Jesus because I didn't know who Jesus was. I knew a lot of things about Jesus, but I didn't know who he was. How did he interact with the people? What were his mannerisms? What was the message that he brought? What was the narrative arc behind the story of his life? Just who is Jesus of Nazareth? What are his core principles? What are his foundational attitudes? What are his values? If I was going to find a new way forward, it had to be a new way forward in Jesus. 
What legalism posits is what a lot of people refer to as the blueprint. You see, God has a way he wants people to serve him, someone would say. And God gives us a blueprint that we need to follow. Just as God gave us a blueprint for the tabernacle, he gives us a blueprint for how we're to be saved. We need to hear, believe, confess, repent, and be baptized. And then continue faithfully so that you can have that crown of life. God gives us a blueprint for how he wants to be worshipped. That means a cappella, no instrumental music whatsoever. That means, you know, meeting on the first day of every week. That means giving a contribution on the first day of every week. That means observing the Lord's Supper. It means that we all sing together. The women remain silent. Men speak and teach one at a time, and we have prayers. That's the blueprint, and there are instructions on exactly how all of that is to be done. That's the blueprint. And that blueprint is a largely imagined blueprint that arises from those tenets of legalism. Because legalism demands a blueprint. Legalism demands black and white thinking. Legalism demands certainty. Now, I'll agree that there is a blueprint. There absolutely is a blueprint that Christians are to follow. But it's not a contrived blueprint of rules and checklists and regulations. The blueprint is Jesus. Jesus is our blueprint. He is our model. He calls us all to be like him. And in order to do that, we need to know what he's about. We need to know what his values are. We need to get a grasp on who Jesus is, not as a son of God, not as the divine you know, arbiter of salvation unto us. That is who he is. That's a fundamental part of who he is. Make no mistake. But we need to know who he is as a human being. We need to know who Jesus was, who, who Josh Scott on our podcast not too long ago referred to as that three-dimensional Jesus. That Jesus who is not only the Son of God, but who's also a human being that exemplifies love and kindness and compassion and gentleness and mercy and grace. We need to not know a bunch of stuff about Jesus. We need to know Jesus. We need to know who He is. And if you've been in the prospect, or the or rather the the, the uh, process of deconstructing your legalistic thinking, and you're having a hard time finding something to fill its place, go to the Gospels. Start there. Start in Matthew. Read it all the way through. Wes McAdams he he spoke not too long ago on his podcast of reading the Bible through. And ignoring the chapters, he mentioned this on our podcast too, ignoring the verses, ignoring the chapters, and pick a book of the Bible and read it all the way through in one sitting. Do that with the Gospels. Read Matthew, then read Mark, read Luke, read John, and then go back and read it again. And then go back and read them again. Read them three times and pay attention to what we see about Jesus. Pay attention to who Jesus is. And then after you've done that, go to the epistles. Because largely legalism stems from the epistles. Legalism stems in the do's and don'ts of legalism stem from the instructions that are given in the epistles. Do this, do that, do it this way, don't do that, etc., etc. Once you have a grasp on who Jesus is, read the epistles through that Christ-centered lens. Read them through the lens of Jesus. And here's what you're going to see. This is what I saw, and this is what I think you'll see too. Instead of a book of the rules and the regulations and statutes and laws that we all must follow or else hell fire forever, what I found and what I saw was the message of a God who loves me. I saw the message of a Jesus that echoed through those letters. The same thing I saw in the Gospels is what I saw in those epistles that those great men of faith wrote so long ago. I saw the message that Paul, Peter, James, and John, and everyone else wanted to deliver. I saw that it was all centered around Jesus and his redemptive act for me and for you. It was a message of not rules and regulations, but it was a message of letting go of your old self, dying to yourself, leaving behind the old systems and the old ways of life that you pursued and pursuing something more, pursuing something higher, pursuing a more abundant life by losing yourself and finding Christ. 
instead of a law book, I found a story revealed through the mirror narrative of who Christ is and the values that he exemplified, how we can relate to Christ, how we can know Christ, how we can be like Christ. I learned how to love well. I learned how to love my neighbor as myself. I learned how to love my enemy. And whenever you see the scriptures through the lens of Jesus, folks, it changes everything. Your paradigm can't help but shift when you see Jesus. After the New Testament, I went back to the Old Testament. And I haven't read it through. And I've read a lot of other books, too, about Jesus. I've read a whole lot of other books about the Bible. I've read a whole lot of books about the ancient Near East, its culture, its time, its place, and these different doctrinal topics and everything else. I probably haven't read quite as many as Kevin has because, after all, he's writing a new book. Did you guys know that? (laughs) Had a jab at you, Kevin. But you'll see Jesus in the Old Testament, too. Jesus changes everything. And even in that, there are still struggles. Even in that, it still gets hard. And I know the hardest part for me has been letting go. The hardest part for me has been letting go of that need to be perfect. Because that's what legalism pursues. It pursues this illusion of perfection that through my own actions and through my own study and through my own ability to parse data and acquire knowledge, I can be more holy and upright in God's sight. Folks, that's an impossibility, and it leads to either, as Kevin has said, extreme arrogance where you think you have it all figured out and you are perfect and upright before God, or it leads to terror because you realize it's impossible, and you go to sleep every night afraid of dying because you don't know if you'll stand before God or be cast into hell. Let go of your attempt to be perfect. Let go of your attempt to control everything. Let go of that thought process that says that the only way I can be right before God is to be an automaton and just do all of the right things the right ways. That's a dead faith. That's a faith that leads nowhere. That's a faith that says, well, if I go sit in this pew and drink this juice and eat this cracker and listen to this sermon and sing these songs without musical instruments... And if I do all of these other things, well, then, you know, God's going to accept me because I do this. That's a dead faith. It's a life of misery. It's not spiritually fulfilling. It's based on obligation. And as my buddy Kyle, who I've already mentioned, is fond of saying, obligation is not godly. Letting go has been hard. Letting the Spirit direct me has been difficult, but it's getting easier. I've had to recalibrate my expectations and realize that I'm not capable of meeting that standard on my own without Jesus. I've got to have him in the driver's seat. Without Jesus, it's impossible. And so much of legalism functions and drives forward without Jesus. It's a form of idolatry that elevates my understanding of the Bible above Jesus. It supplants him as the supreme authority in my life. And when I let go of that and realize that Jesus must reign on the throne of my heart, everything changed. Folks, that's how I have been able to move out of legalism and move into grace. I haven't arrived, and I don't think I ever will, because this is an ongoing process. It's like jujitsu in that you never learn and master everything. You only get a little bit better at it every time. It's a lot like bodybuilding in that you pursue this this physique, but you know you're never going to attain it. But it doesn't matter because Jesus is the one that's leading and he's the one that's guiding. And if you want to find that fulfillment, if you want to find that more abundant life, go to the scriptures and find Jesus. Let the Spirit direct you and he'll be there. If you seek him, you will find him. If you seek him, with all of your heart. And folks, that's the point of Scripture. Surrender. Deny yourself and your need to have control. Deny your need to get everything right, because you never will. 
deny your need to know everything and understand everything and have the right checklist and check all the right boxes and do all the right things and perform all the right rituals, all the right ways so you can be right before God. Deny that because that's you talking. That's your flesh talking. It's your flesh talking wearing a, a, a bad spiritual disguise is all that is. That's your flesh masquerading in sanctimonious self-righteousness. Deny yourself and take up your cross, which means surrendering yourself and follow Jesus. Go to the scriptures and find them, and you'll find what it means to move from legalism and into God's grace. <sighs> I've talked about 25 minutes longer than I intended to, but... That's all I have. I hope that that is sufficient for everybody. I hope that you got something out of it. These solo episodes always scare me because I feel like I'm just rambling on and on and on and I feel like they're worthless, but hopefully you got something out of it and you're blessed for it. If you've listened to the whole thing, thank you. We appreciate it. We appreciate our audience. We appreciate all of you. We love you guys. You guys are awesome. And this podcast has been such a blessing to Kevin and I, as we know it's been a blessing to so many of you. You guys have reached out to us and let us know how much you've been touched by it, how much you enjoy it. And folks, we have been blessed by it too. We love hearing from you. Holler at us if you have any questions, if you have any concerns, if you want prayer, join our Facebook group. We'd love to have you join in the discussion. And folks, please share this podcast with other people. We have some really, really cool plans in the works. We have some ideas in mind to help expand this and grow it because we really think that there are even more people out here in this world that can benefit from what we're doing here. We know we've benefited a lot of people and we know it's been a benefit for us and we want to help more. One of the best things you can do is share this podcast on Facebook, share it on social media, share it with your friends, send links to your grand aunt Ethel up in Timbuktu or wherever it is she lives. Like us on Facebook, join our discussion group, drop us a line and give us that five-star review on iTunes. Thank you all for listening. We love you all. Good night.